hello and welcome. Today I am joined again by Susanna Black to discuss things that arise out of our discussion and reading of Ways of Judgment by Oliver O'Donovan, but this time we're going to go a lot further afield in our discussion. We're going to be talking about freedom of speech. So first of all, I thought we could begin with a quote from Oliver O'Donovan, which is found in the Ways of Judgment, page 137. Freedom of speech strengthens the public social bonds and prevents their being swallowed up by political demands. If there is one special virtue in constitutional arrangements that incorporate formal opposition into the regime, it is to encourage freedom of speech. Yet free speech can only be encouraged, not conferred, for free speech is participation in the word of God, not a privilege which one form of constitution may confer, another refuse. Nor is it a right that one citizen may claim another forego. That would imply that only the private citizen who exercised it, exercised it had an interest in it. Whereas candor is of the greatest importance for the public realm itself. Candor is a simple public duty, often unperformed or performed badly, out of simple reluctance to take responsibility for the truth on which the community depends. Behind many a story of tyranny lies collusion between oppressor and oppressed, a community that prefers to accept a shrunken public realm rather than pay the price of discerning and articulating complex truths in public. So with that to begin with, um, what do you make of O'Donovan's position there? Um, I think it's a solution to a very complicated set of, or I think it's one aspect of a solution to a very complicated set of questions. And I think he is basically among the only people who I know of to have articulated something like a non-liberal or pre-liberal or post-liberal basic argument for what is generally considered to be a liberal good, um, free speech. And I think that for that reason, he is extremely, uh, important for us to look at on this topic right now. Beyond that, I would say that his position probably has something in common with his earlier statements about things such as the imperfectibility um, mm -hmm. that characterizes politics. Freedom of speech, among other things, holds things open. It recognizes that we are always in the process of deliberation, that conversations cannot be foreclosed in a way that we presume that we already know the conclusions of conversations before we have had them. And so the concern for free speech is maybe preserving something of the incompleteness of our understanding of what is right to do. I think that's right. I also think that, um, so there are, there are a couple of different um, ways to approach this. And one of them is to think very kind of as, as carefully as we can and to talk as carefully as we can about the arguments against free speech, which are very, very strong. Um, and then the other thing that I'd like to kind of get into is to talk about the, um, I mean, O'Donovan, O'Donovan's um, vision is very much a public vision. It's a kind of almost a civic Republican vision and I think that free speech in the public realm is 
a slightly different question from the importance of private realms of speech. And both public and private realms of speech are sort of threatened now in various ways. And I think that um, talking about some, how, how some of those, some of those ways that, that the question of free speech has popped up in just the news cycle of the past couple of weeks even um, would be interesting because some of those questions are not straightforwardly questions of free speech in the way that O'Donovan means it, but have more to do with cultivating private social spaces and interior, like the ability of smaller groups of friends even to think um, even about dangerous ideas. And that's slightly different than O'Donovan's vision of a kind of, you know, citizen speaking with Parhesia like forthrightly in the, um, in the Agora or the Christian version of that. So yeah, I, there's just so, there's a lot to get to. And I feel as though I'm not <laughs> entirely sure where to begin almost. It does seem as though when people talk about freedom of speech, implicit in their understanding is a particular location from which, from which that speech is coming, a particular type of speech that they have in mind, for instance. So for O'Donovan, when he's talking about free speech, it's public speech for the sake of public goods. Mm -hmm. Whereas for many people, it's seen in terms of private speech that should not be curtailed by the government. Then there are other right. people who are thinking about private speech that should be deplatformed by non-governmental institutions. So there shouldn't be um, government sanctions against people who are expressing their free opinion, but we should make sure that universities um, remove such people from any platform that they might have. And then there are other situations where we talk about the importance of free speech it's very much speaking truth to power. It's mm -hmm. implicit that the free speech that's being celebrated is uh, sort of punching up. Um, mm -hmm. As soon as that free speech changes direction, um, it can be quite strongly opposed or is perceived to change direction. So it can often be important, I think, to discern who are the agents that are presumed to be engaging in free speech, where is the realm it's occurring, mm -hmm. um, to what end is it occurring, mm -hmm. and who might and might not police it. So for instance, in a broader conception of free speech, it needs to be seen as a, a, a virtue of a society that needs to be sustained by everyone. So it's the way we sustain free speech by not losing our temper with other people when they express something that's offensive to us that we give them the space in which to express their viewpoint by just hearing them out. And that is part of what makes a society a place of free speech. When people feel cowed by other people's judgment or condemnation, they do not express themselves with candor. They can shrink back from telling what they believe is the full truth. Then there are other things. What sort of speech is in mind? Um, conscientious speech has often been implicit where people talk about free speech. It's the uh, Norman Rockwell picture of the man standing up <laughs> in the crowd and 
speaking his mind. Um, whereas for others, it's free speech as the right to produce pornography or something like that, and that there should be no censorship. Mm. And it's not speech according to conscience or speech according to a commitment to truth. It's speech as free expression of whatever you want to express, irrespective of truth or conscience. And so teasing out some of those issues, I think, is important. There's also, I mean, um, I was sort of trying to think back as far as I could through all the various permutations of this debate that have gone on for the last, whatever, 4,000 years, and, or, I don't know, 2,600 years. And so the other sort of big distinction that to make is um, O'Donovan's version of speech is very much, I, I would think, rational speech about political topics. That's very, in a way, very direct. That's um, like, let us discuss the, these possible policies that we may or may not um, want to support. And let's talk about why. Let's talk about facts that are being suppressed. Let's talk about like thinking about imagining a society where the leaders and the people have colluded in a conspiracy of dishonesty and, and accepted a shrunken public realm is something like, um, I mean, I don't know, something like the Uyghurs in China where it, it feels as though, or something like the way that, you know, Germans sort of kept their mouths shut and kept a lid on their own curiosity about what was happening to, to Jews in the Third Reich and so on. So those kind of public issues, um, facts that are being suppressed, arguments that are being um, curtailed uh, were, you know, shamed out of, um, out of public discourse. That's kind of O'Donovan's major vision for what he's talking about. But of course, the other kind of um, way to think about it and the other one, the first version of this conversation that I could think of was um, Plato and the Republic talking about the danger of the poets to the state and the danger, and you can think about that in a couple of different ways. So that's not about rational speech. That's about like the way that imaginative speech can shape us, can shape our, our appetites, can shape our, our passions. Um, and that is a very different kind of a thing. That distinction between reason being suppressed, which is a bad, um, according to O'Donovan, and passions being shaped, or ideas about, you know, Plato would also say ideas about the gods being corrupted. That's a, a, a different, although I guess ideas about the gods being corrupted would fall kind of in between those two areas. But that's, those are two quite different, I think, areas of discussion when we're talking about free speech. I think in addition to that, we should probably think about the manner in which what people are concerned about in the case of free speech is often bound up with institutionalized discourses. So we're talking about the academy or we're talking about the law courts or we're talking about the realm of politics. And in these cases, what we're dealing with is something more than just individuals being able to express whatever they want as individuals in private spaces. It's more a matter of having processes that are well ordered towards truth. And those, those processes are not necessarily ones without boundaries. So within 
the law court, for instance, it's a discourse ordered towards the discernment of truth and the deliberation towards justice. And it's a social discourse that is participated in by a great many different people playing different roles in concert with each other. And sometimes those roles have an antagonistic aspect to them. There are people arguing against each other and in conflict with each other. But the process itself is one that transcends individual participants and is ordered towards a greater end. And when there's been threats upon free speech, often the concern has been chiefly um, with the breakdown of institutions of discourse. So the academy, the inability of academics and others to say what they believe is true in a discourse that's not merely about their personal expression, but is society's discourse, primary discourse, concerning knowledge and wisdom. And so thinking about that, I think, is important because what's going on there is not necessarily individuals in private spaces, but mm. the inability of our public and institutional structures to sustain candid speech and to enable us to have speech that is genuinely ordered towards what is good, true and just, and the struggle to achieve that in a society where people are nervous about certain viewpoints, for instance, or have a sense of fundamental antagonism that exceeds any procedural goods. Yeah, and I think that actually the the institution, the kind of more macro institution that I think is interesting to think about in in this from this perspective is something like the public sphere as an institution in itself, um, which you know would largely not, although not entirely, be a question of um, both journalism and social media, um, and that actually that sort of vision of there is a public sphere which journalists and kind of private citizens speaking up in ways where if you think of like twitter as you know the digital or the electronic public sphere or whatever you want to think about it however you want to talk about it that framework um and the idea that speech needs to be protected in that framework, um, I think actually matches pretty closely with um, some of the more classical liberal visions of what, like what we're doing when we when we do speak freely. So, like I'm thinking about Milton's *Aeropagitica* or um, John Stuart Mill in *On Liberty*, and Milton is actually quite a bit more. Um, I kind of looked at it again. He's quite a bit more O'Donovanian than Mill is, unsurprisingly. Um, Mill would talk about, um, you know, he's the marketplace of ideas guy. So like, it's, it's almost as though we're all private citizens shopping around or shopping for ideas. Um, and, you know, we, we need to allow that commerce to go on. Um, and it's very much an economic model in a way. And the argument against that, and I keep like throughout thinking through all of these things, it's very easy to come up with arguments against against them. And the argument against that is obviously that like, we buy really junky stuff in marketplaces and we 
by um, things that harm others and things that harm ourselves. And we don't necessarily, we are not, we don't buy a lot of kale in the marketplace of ideas. We tend to buy a lot of like, you know, shamrock shakes, or, you know, we tend to buy a lot of, you know, I don't know, clothing made in sweatshops in China. So things that are convenient for us, ideas that are convenient for us, but hurt other people. Um, so for example, the, um, the idea that it's okay to um, have an abortion is something that is very convenient for some people and hurts other people. And so that kind of marketplace of ideas vision, I think is quite a bit, like, I think that's a pretty bad idea. And I think that that economic understanding of what we're doing when we talk I'm not crazy about it. I don't think it's very helpful or accurate. Milton's version of this, I think, does kind of get more at what I would at least want to have a public realm be getting at, which which is more of this kind of like, it's our duty to to try and govern ourselves rationally. And we know that we're not necessarily that great at being rational on an individual basis. And so we need to develop the internal discipline to keep our tempers, to learn how to make rational arguments, to have the courage to speak up, um, to listen to other people carefully, to, to sort of, to, to do the, the discipline of actually having a conversation as opposed to just screaming at each other. Um, and that as a kind of social norm and as a communal project that we're all trying to do and that takes personal virtue that does not happen just by the releasing of personal appetite for ideas or expression but that takes personal virtue but that we do together as a kind of communal project that I do think is extremely worthwhile and necessary and is one of the things that I think is being threatened by whatever you want to call the meltdown at the New York Times or the narrowing of public discourse or the ideas, the idea that words are, words can cause me harm, cause me emotional harm in a way that should, that puts the responsibility on you to not use them. All of those things which, which are kind of, I think, going on right now in our public sphere undermine our ability to push back against our own irrationality and our own limited perspectives um, by having this kind of disciplined public conversation, which ought to take place, <laughs> I, you know, in the pages of newspapers and in the academy and sometimes even on Twitter, I think. <laughs> it does seem though that you talk about the importance of individual virtue, but that can be very strongly bound up with institutional and social structures and customs of speech and those structures do a lot of the policing and I think one of the struggles that we have today is the collapse of structures of of speech and the differentiation between realms of speech for instance when you engage in the academy or you engage in the law court whatever it is the form of discourse keeps certain people in their place. It keeps certain types of speech in their place. It differentiates between things. It, it does not believe that in the mere exercise of free expression, 
we will arrive at truth, justice, or goodness. Rather, these things require a disciplined form and set of procedures in order to um, move towards them. Um, you need, for instance, processes of stress testing. You need to avoid constantly having antagonistic structures. You need to recognize spaces where you just explore ideas and allow things to come out through exploratory processes. And that sense of a choreographed and variegated realm of discourse is one that I think we lose in the internet age where things tend to collapse into each other, contexts um, lose their boundaries and mm -hmm. different types of people and their aptitudes in conversation and their ability to participate in and contribute to a larger social discourse ordered towards truth. When they're collapsed into each other, they tend to work across purposes. And I think we've all seen the way that language in a realm that lacks boundaries can actually be very volatile, it can be a dangerous thing, and it can lead to a lot of hurt, which is one of the reasons why I think people are really pushing back against freedom of speech, because they're seeing some of the damage that it's causing. Mm -hmm. I think that's true, but I also think that, um, well, okay, so one, one example of this, I think, is the uh, this thing that happened right at, back at the beginning of the pandemic when a lot of universities were going on Zoom and um, professors were getting, you know, for the first time getting their classes taped, essentially um, recorded and, and potentially broadcast. And there is a difference between like there, or there ought to be, this is, this is part of the problem. Like there ought to be a kind of, let's talk about potentially really bad ideas in a university classroom. Ideas that we need to be able to like, you know, Peter Singer, like what if, what if it is, um, what if what we should do is minimize the total amount of pain undergone by conscious agents in the world and that is our one measure of good action i think that is a terrible idea i think that it there needs to be a space to talk about it publicly but it's not always appropriate for that space to be super public like there there has to be a kind of inter intermediate space of um just like people who know what they're getting into almost like, and that might be a university classroom. That might be someone, even like the differences in, in discourse level of like reading a debate, like a debate between Peter Singer and Char Charlie Camacy or something in, um, you know, carried out across the pages of like the new Atlantis and the guardian and whatever, like that's a different kind of emotional register than people feeling freaked out by those ideas quite rightly because they're horrible ideas um, on, you know, on Twitter. And part of the, the problem here is that even at our best, like even at like, at our best, we ought to have a kind of Leon Cass style repugnance towards awful ideas. And at our best, we ought to be able to, in a way, 
you use the language of decoupling, decouple that repugnance from thinking through the ideas rationally. And both of those are like humans at their best. And if we're trying to like, we can't cultivate both of those at the same time and in the same place, kind of. There, I think it's important again to reflect upon our modern forms of speech technology. Um, when we talk about free speech, much of what we're talking about is free writing. Um, and there's something about the different forms of speech, different contexts and different modes that we need to consider here because particularly in the internet age, a lot of our speech has become considerably less inert when you're writing something in a book and it's going to take a number of years years to go through the entire process from your pen until it's actually published and read by readers and they're going to be quite some distance away from you physically and in other ways in context when they read you your words are fairly inert and often that book has traveled through decades even centuries to reach that person's hand if i'm reading plato his ideas can be quite challenging at times and they may be quite objectionable at points but those ideas are not threatening to me in the same way as someone who has a really really bad opinion on twitter because oh, that... i get triggered by plato all the time i don't know about you <laughs> <laughs> but but there's something about the inertness of words in writing that in a book that it's not the same on twitter and I elsewhere see... It depends on what you mean. I mean, so I think one of the reasons that um, I am kind of a, not a free speech absolutist by any means, but a someone who thinks that it's really important to be able to ask terrible, terrible questions and like gaze into the abyss <laughs> is that my own kind of coming to faith came in part through like, you know, terrible questions like what if all we are is matter in motion that's not gonna like make me angry in the same way that someone's terrible opinion on twitter will but it certainly has the capacity to be incredibly non-inert so like i guess like a 17th century materialist like i'm trying to think of who it would be um or who was the original atomic theorist the pre-socratic why can't i think of his name Anyway, um, like the idea of all of reality being material is profoundly destructive and upsetting and ultimately can like lead people to insanity or hell. It also probably, and if you are a certain kind of person, it can like trigger you in a way in the sense that it will cause you intense emotional distress. So. I don't know that I believe that there is that, like, I'm, I'm not sure that I totally buy that distinction between the inert and the active word. I mean, I'm I not going to get- I think the, distinction, the yeah. distinction is, it's one of degree, but there is a distinction of kind as well. When you're dealing with the written word, it is distinct from the person. Um, it is something that has become detached from its author to a degree that it's not on Twitter or when someone speaks something to you directly in conversation. So if someone 
instead of speaking to you in conversation, writes you a letter, it has a different effect. You, the letter is an object in itself that you have to deal with and the views and ideas and the um, expressions found within that letter can be deeply personally affecting or um, they can be profoundly upsetting or offensive, but you're dealing with the text itself in a way that's more detached from the, the writer. Okay. That, that makes I think, sense. I mean, an illustration of this would be, for instance, Jeremiah speaks to King Jehoiakim and other people of Judah. He expresses highly objectionable viewpoints about the future of the nation, its current state under judgment, and he can be dismissed. He can be persecuted. He can be put in a pit, whatever. Um, he can be attacked as the messenger because mm -hmm. his actions are seen or his words are seen as a form of action but when he writes a book the book has a very different sort of presence another example would be in um pride and prejudice the way in which um when darcy expresses himself to lizzie bennett she can dismiss him with her wit and play off against him as the speaker but when he writes a letter to her, she can't do that in the same way. The letter has, it's less of an active thing. Mm -hmm. and it's more of a stubborn presence that has to be wrestled with on its own terms. And you can't just treat it as an action and attack the actor and consider what the actor is trying to do with it. Um, rather, you need to treat it more on its own terms. And I think that there's a difference between speech conceived of primarily as an expression of truth as something in itself that's mm -hmm. trying to reach to something good or true or just and speech considered as very much an action what is the person trying to do with this and yeah. i think this is or, one of and the ways specifically what is the person this person trying to do to me and like how am i perceiving this as a, a literal attack on me in this moment I think this is one of the reasons why the sort of hermeneutics of suspicion have become so powerful. And one of the things that have pushed against freedom of speech, mm -hmm. because people see speech, not so much in terms of um, expression of viewpoints and ideas, mm -hmm. but in terms of veiled intentions and actions that are ordered towards some purpose, which is typically uh, some expression of power or mm. privilege or some way of um, bolstering their own position mm. which is not just a matter of appealing to truth rather it's seen very much as action and when that changes i think speech becomes violence it starts to be seen very much in action categories and people are not happy to just allow conversation about very offensive or challenging issues even if the person might be entirely right, and even if they're speaking in goodwill, it can't be believed because the speech is an action and it's felt as an action upon them. Yeah. Okay. So here's a really, this is an interesting, okay. So this is taking it very far outside of um, examples that we might see um, today, but so <laughs> 
uh, Laplace, the, the, the physicist, and his kind of snarky quip to um, Napoleon, uh, where Napoleon asked him where in his system of the universe um, you could find God, and he, and he said, I have no need for that hypothesis. Um, the ideas of a sort of 18th century materialist are ideas that need to be dealt with as ideas. I can imagine in a kind of like 18th century culture war context, seeing him as being sort of esoterically anti-Catholic or anti-clerical. And if you sort of look at Laplace and say, oh, he's just an anti-Catholic or he's just, he's just one of those French anti-clerical, like 18th century French, French anti-clericalists trying, you know, um, sort of flexing the muscle of the incipient liberal state again. Well, I guess that wouldn't work because he was talking to Napoleon, but like they're looking at the ideas and then looking at someone in their in their position in society and imagining that you understand um, what the power move that they are doing in the context of their, their time. Um, those are two quite different things. That I was, that totally made sense in my head. I think maybe another thing about our particular context of speech is that on the internet, particularly, our speech is self-representation. And so what you speak about is the way in which you portray yourself as a person. It's building your own brand. It's expressing what sort of person you are, what you value. And so people pay a lot of attention to the speech not just in terms of its actual contents, but in terms of what it's saying about you, which is one of the reasons why things like anonymity or pseudonymity really have been adopted by many people because it makes it a lot easier to say what they believe, not just so that they won't suffer persecution, but because so that they can, they can say and discuss things that they believe without it being a sort of self-branding, that mm -hmm. they can take themselves out of the picture. I mean, when I read most books, I don't have a clue, much of an idea who the author is. I have some vague idea. I know what institution he or she works at. And I have some idea of the broad camp that they belong to. But much of the time, I don't know them as a person. I don't have much association with them. The author is largely bracketed. Um, it's the same with many voices online that are anonymous precisely in order that they might take their self a bit more out of the circulation of the the meaning of what they're saying they're not trying to build build a brand they're trying to say what they believe and they're not trying to act so much as individuals as to explore ideas and truth mm -hmm. it's almost like the the discussion between a bunch of it, a non-Twitter accounts becomes like the discussion inside your inside your own head because it's not really about I mean it can be about building relationships or it can be about you know even as an anon like an anonymous account you can still sort of build up a, a presence but the pleasure of that kind of conversation is more 
the pleasure of internal speculation almost or internal or, or conversation with deeply trusted friends where it's really about the ideas. It's not about yourself at all. Um, now, the, you know, you're always more pessimistic than I am about um, the modes of discourse that, for example, Twitter or whatever, anonymous chat boards um, promote. But it seems to me that as good, like one of the one of the ways that, that might be bad is that, or at least one of the things to think about is that that's not normal. Obviously, close friendships where you can talk about, where you can have wild speculation about ideas that you would not, not necessarily talk about in public is normal and has is a human thing that has always existed. But completely unmoored anonymity, where you are just like sort of set free to fly your freak flag as much as you want um, is like the only thing that I, I guess like pamphleteering and the early modern pamphlet wars were kind of like this, but like anonymous conversation with no social context and no responsibility is something that is pretty new and I feel like there's, in other words, having a society, having a community around you that like says, um, I think you're going off the deep end is also important. Although it's less weird than a, con a context where everything that anyone says is recorded, yes. can be brought up years later, can be abstracted from their context yeah. and shared by someone on the other side of the world in a completely different context. Yeah. Um, where everything is treated as if it were published and yeah. public. Um, that is far more weird. Um, that is in extremely many ways I mean, than people speaking in very obscure contexts in there ways this, that their identity is only known to those immediately around them. Yeah, there was this piece in Pointer, um, the journalist, the sort of journalistic um, trade publication, I think a couple of days ago where someone was complaining that Clubhouse, the new, the app that um, I haven't managed to set up an account at yet, even though I have an invitation, that the problem with it was that there, there was no recording. And so it would be impossible to fact check. <laughs> and I was thinking like, like, that's true of like restaurants. Like, is that, is that like a design flaw in like restaurants or in like, I don't know, Central Park? <laughs> like. It, it, is, it is very weird that we have gotten to a place and journalists, I speak on behalf of my tribe, are by far like the ones who have driven this, where it seems like morally obligatory to be able to fact check everyone and record everyone's speech and make sure that everyone can be held accountable for every word. That seems really strange. And it doesn't seem healthy either. I think it leads to a loss of an ecology of speech that is more conducive to candid and um, socially healthful speech than one in which speech is flattened out and mm -hmm. contexts are collapsed into each other. So for instance, within the context of 
a law court. There are many different agents of speech speaking in different ways, and not everyone is permitted to enter into every conversation. There's a sense of the importance of boundaries. And I think in the same way, traditional forms of speech had a lot of things that kept people in their place. Um, so if you wanted to have express your opinion, you generally had to earn the right to be heard. Um, getting published was not easy. You'd have to generally reach a position where your voice would be worthy of attention, um, get some position in some institution, some academic organization or um, some other political structure, whatever it was. And then you'd have to run the gauntlet of editors and publishers and all sorts of other things in order to get your voice heard. Whereas now the means of publication are very widely shared and it's not necessarily good for the social process of the um, public deliberation concerning truth, partly because there are certain things that can't be discussed, general company. You need to be in contexts where people have developed the character, are trained in mastering themselves, they can deal with um, quite volatile or emotive truths and actually think through them without losing their cool. They know how to go through the procedures. And that, I think, um, it does require processes that exclude people. And so freedom of speech as a sort of free for all of speech actually tends to undermine trust. It tends to lead to an overheating um, with people getting offended all the time and a pushback in the other direction. So people constantly talk about fake news, that um, those processes of faithful reporting are actually going awry. People don't trust them. They don't even trust the fact checkers. And then the processes of speech on somewhere like Twitter are constantly spreading viral falsehoods there, um, contexts of volatile and offensive speech that people feel threatened by. And it is far from clear that free speech is a sort of libertarian free for all, um, or the marketplace of ideas actually leads to anything good. Um, and so I wonder how we might reestablish some of those structures within which a more disciplined exercise of speech as a principled and concerted effort towards truth, goodness, and justice might be pursued. It seems to me that it doesn't just happen. And increasingly the internet is proof that it doesn't just happen. Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, so I've, first of all, I had this idea, I had this concept of the wet marketplace of ideas um, as the thing that uh, fake news comes out of and then like infects the whole rest of society, which is a really, I'm just gonna pretend I didn't think about that. Um, <laughs> and now I'm trying to think of what the equivalent of eating a pangolin would be. This is really bad. Okay. Um, so the criticism of, um, the criticism of kind of 
All right, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's also a criticism of ra rational debate kind of from above. And it's also a criticism of- I mean, there's always the possibility debate. of ideas escaping from labs <laughs> that aren't well protected. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is the parallel. But no, so here's, um, I, I feel like in order to properly kind of defend um, this kind of fairly bourgeois, um, in certain ways you could call it liberal ideal of rational discussion. The other thing that you have to face is the criticism of, I guess you would, you would call them like right post-liberals, for example, Genoso Cortez, um, where he, he <laughs> there's this quotation where he defines the bourgeoisie as the discussing class. And the idea of this endless discussion and endless kind of um, parliamentary debate, which essentially doesn't go anywhere and doesn't lead to anyone putting anything on the line ever, um, even if it is rational, even if it's non-hysterical, even if it keeps out the masses in certain ways or keeps out, um, does pr proceed along um, lines of uh, custom and with it, and it proceeds within sort of institutions that are well-structured, there's still something that can be its own kind of decadence. And I think that actually um, one of the things that I love about O'Donovan's take um, is that he actually addresses that as well. Um, although I'm, I'm not sure he addresses it directly, but he very much, um, you know, his vision of what conversation is about, um, political conversation, rational political conversation, is that it is directed towards decision. Um, and that, and, you know, a whole chunk of the rest of the book is, has to do with the importance of taking action and taking action as the end of a process of discussion, um, which does not go on forever. And the this whole sort of complex of, things that, ha that, that happen in that process, the discussion itself, the giving and receiving of reasons and the making of decisions by, by magistrates, by um, final, like finally by um, rulers, those are all important. They're all part of the, the, the picture of a healthy society and one that shapes its, its citizens towards, um, towards virtue. And that seems to involve a lot more than just the act of speech. I mean, most basically, it involves the task of listening well. Um, it involves the process of sifting things out, deliberating concerning ideas and proposals, and meditating upon things that have put forward. There's, there's a discipline also of not making up your mind um, mm -hmm. until you're ready to do so. And then... Mm -hmm you have that duty to make up your mind. You can't mm -hmm. just be in constant suspension, not having mm -hmm. determined anything. And so that requires certain processes, institutions, procedures. It also involves virtues in participants that don't just happen. And they're not naturally occurring. They require quite a bit of formation. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that we can often treat free speech 
in ways that exclude all of these sorts of things from the consideration and many of the other conditions that encourage or discourage freedom of speech. One of the problems in the university at the moment is the precarious character of many people's employment, which means that people are more and more encouraged to herd around particular ideas that ensure that they will be still in employment next semester. Um, and that is just so part of the economic preconditions of a, of a society of free speech, where people are constantly worried that they're going to lose their jobs, you will, first of all, you will encourage certain people to speak rather than others. And you'll also make it very difficult for people to express unpopular truths. Then there are other situations like um, contexts where this, the excessive speed of conversation makes it very difficult to engage in the processes of deliberation well. And there's a running ahead of statements and expressions, they run ahead of the processes of careful listening and weighing. And so when we talk about freedom of speech, I think we need to be a lot more concerned with the broader ecology and processes that actually make that worthwhile. If we don't have those processes and we just think about maximizing expression, enabling as many people to do it as possible, as fast as possible, and with as few forms of friction as possible, then we won't actually have the benefits of a society that actually pursues freedom of speech in a more thoughtful manner. Yeah, that is the dollar store of ideas. It's the sort of, or I don't know, Walmart of ideas where you just, let's, let's express things as cheaply as possible. The first things that appeal to us, um, let's just get the let's get the GDP up, let's get the, as many, any, as many words as possible going as fast as possible. That, it seems to me to be, this is why um, I don't think that that is at all a helpful model. And then I think when we're dealing with speech, we also need to consider the way that different forms of speech actually support each other. So one of the problems that we have in places like Twitter or Facebook is the collision of forms of speech that are deliberating about truth and ideas with forms of speech that are about more phatic speech or speech that's concerned more with connecting with other people mm -hmm. and forming community. Because typically those things will be distinguished from each other. You have the forms of speech that are about forming society and forging bonds between people. And then you have those forms of speech that are more threatening and, and agonistic. You're tackling ideas and debating and um, there's a conflictual element to it. But those are usually bound within an arena that is contained by these other forms of speech. And when those things are mixed together, it actually ends up spreading the conflict on the one hand and also bringing the dynamics of more... Um, relational speech to bear upon contexts where that will actually just confuse everything because people are more concerned with how this relates to social relations, how it, um, how it frames people's identity, whatever it is. There's no sense of a boundary that needs yeah. to be placed between these different forms of speech. But when they are yeah. distinguished well, you find that the positive relations that are formed through charitable and healthy um, social discourse 
will enable us to engage in disputational public discourse in a mm. way that's non-threatening. Mm. I feel as though I've had so many conversations where I realize halfway through that generally what happens is <laughs> I am in the mode of um, truth seeking and idea testing and I realize that the person I'm talking to or the people that I'm talking to are in the mode of seeking affirmation and reminds me of the it's not about the nail stick <laughs> it's exactly <laughs> but I mean I've also been on the other uh, on the other side of that many times as well and it's incredibly frustrating um I do think that um stepping back a little bit and thinking about like the ways that we can be shaped as human beings by speech one thing that I've come to in thinking through all this is like, what can we hope for from human beings in discussion? Or what can we hope for? What, what part of the formation of ourselves and other people as humans um, happens in the context of discussion? Like is discussion, I, and I think it can really vary. So discussion can be a kind of cowardly or um, decadent, uh, delay of decision. It can be a kind of um, freedom of speech can be an excuse for forms of discourse or forms of artistic creation that are like bad for us. But it also seems to me that O'Donovan wants to say that there's a thing that public discussion and public political debate can do towards forming the souls of, you know, of citizens and forming the, the public um, shape of a polity that nothing else can do. Um, it's not the only thing that is needed. There, decision is also needed. You know, he would say coercion is also needed and coercion also shapes individuals and shapes society. But there's something that free speech and candid speech, and again, like, his reframing of this in terms of a duty of candid speech as opposed to a right to free speech has been so helpful helpful for me like there's something that public candid reasoned speech can do that nothing else can do it's one of the ways i've found jordan peterson actually quite perceptive on the subject when he talks about freedom of speech it, he talks about it in relationship to being and it's very similar to uh, O'Donovan, but from very much within Peterson's framework, that we learn how to think by listening to speech and internalizing those voices so that we can have those conversations in our own mind. And speaking candidly and having contexts that allow for these truthful conversations is one of the ways in which we take responsibility for our lives and societies. So for instance, um, he sees the importance of freedom of speech as a means of protecting the transcendence of truth and our responsibility to it. And this is one quote from him. It is the greatest temptation of the rational faculty to glorify its own capacity and its own productions and to claim that in the face of its theories, nothing transcendence, transcendent or outside its domain need exist. 
This means that all important facts have been discovered. This means that nothing important remains unknown. But more importantly, it means denial of the necessity for courageous individual confrontation with being. What is going to save you? The totalitarian says, in essence, you must rely on faith in what you already know. But that is not what saves. What saves is the willingness to learn from what you don't know. This is faith in the possibility of human transformation. That is faith in the sacrifice of the current self for the self that could be. The totalitarian denies the necessity for the individual to take ultimate responsibility for being. Which I find an interesting argument. Um, Peterson rose to the public consciousness more generally with his arguments against compelled speech and particularly in the context of um, trans pronouns and other things like that and his argument is not what you would expect you would usually expect a sort of a liberal typical liberal argument for freedom of expression this is a traditional thing that we valued within the west and north america particularly but his argument i think has more of a sense of the psychological responsibility that we bear to speak truthfully and to internalize truth. And that requires a process where there is an open-endedness to our processes of speech, even though in the process we are seeking to arrive at something. We're not just constantly experiencing constant, complete deferral of truth, mm -hmm. but rather we're constantly moving towards and striving towards a deeper understanding of what is true. And that requires a certain openness to those things that are challenging and, un and unknown and even threatening in their strangeness. I think that, um, I mean, putting it that way does sort of point up the, the fact that open conversation and open-ended conversation and free speech in that sense does have a, a quality of faith and hope. And it is faith in the kind of goodness of being and faith in like the goodness of reality. So if we, if we, if we keep looking for reality with each other and trying to describe it in words, we're not gonna be disappointed. And so we don't need to be ultimately scared. And so we don't, and also we don't need to lie. We can be honest. And then hope in, in the sense that, I mean, human beings are, can be profoundly irrational, but I mean, one thing that O'Donovan talks about is, you know, this is our, this is not, you know, as you, the, the quote that you quoted at the beginning, um, mentions this is not something that freedom of speech is not something that can be given or, or denied by you know one government or another it's our participation in the logos and so our hope as irrational as we can be and as loving of things that will not um, ultimately lead to our our well-being we can be part of free speech is kind of found a, a well-grounded hope in God to be present in our in our conversation and ultimately lead us towards him despite ourselves despite our you know flaws and um, distortions and fear and there I think it also shifts the sense of freedom 
Um, often we think about freedom in terms of the right to express myself. And the freedom there is the libertarian freedom of the will, that there's nothing external that's an obstacle to me expressing myself as I would like. But the sense of freedom that I think we're getting at here is a freedom that must be pursued outside of us, that we haven't arrived at yet. This is a freedom that we need to grow into, that needs to be realized through the formation of the self. And it is a freedom that requires certain processes and disciplines, and those need to be practiced well in community. We're not sufficient for these things by ourselves. We require many voices speaking to us, and we need to learn to listen to those voices well in order to become free people. And that speech is something that is always received from outside first, and then as we receive it, we can ultimately start to experience that freedom within, that we can engage in processes of deliberation and understanding within ourselves that would have been impossible had we never listened to those voices that at first might have come to us as a threatening external limitation of perceived mm -hmm. limitation on our freedom. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the sort of I'm, I'm sort of I'm familiar with one particular Anabaptist community, the Bruderhof, which like traditionally Anabaptist communities use shunning as a, a method of church discipline. And from what I know, or at least the people I know in this Anabaptist community are, would be pretty, you know, you might think of shunning as a kind of like peasants war cancel culture. And the, the Anabaptists that I know in this community would be pretty um, uh, careful about anything about the use of shunning, just because it can be a kind of violence of its own. And the way that they speak to each other and the sort of space that they make for each other, at least in my experience, is a kind of like real persistent and hopeful attempt to find the good in what the other is saying. And that, that's sort of how they, they tend to interact with even people that they only agree with on one issue. You know, if they're, if they're working with another group, um, it's, it's a sort of perpetual commitment towards finding the, good, the shared good and a perpetual sort of faith in the idea that God is making us more and more capable of receiving that good and that we need each other, um, even if we disagree on a lot of things in order to be shaped, like he uses us to shape each other towards that truth. I think that also highlights just how much a freedom of speech requires very much the, the virtues that we show each other, the patience, the forbearance, the forgiveness, the, for instance, it is very hard for people to speak truthfully where they are not given the space to climb down. Um, if you don't extend people the grace to be able to change their mind without utterly losing face, you, will, you won't have a society of free speech. And many of the Christian virtues that we might think of just in terms of personal relationships are also fundamental to having a society that pursues truth. Another thing I've found very helpful 
in thinking about these things is the way that O'Donovan talks about the importance of conversation. Um, so for instance, he writes, this is a long quote, but disagreements are no more unnegotiable natural forces than deliveries of the mistaken conscience are. They are openings for those who share a common faith to explore and resolve important tensions within the context of communion. This kind of proposal is, of course, easy to mishear. It can be taken to mean that parties to disagreements must be less than wholly convinced of their position, ready to make room for possible accommodation. When really, when really serious issues are at stake and talk of something on which the church stands or falls begins to rumble like, like thunder, urging the search for resolution can seem like an invitation to capitulate, to concede essential points before beginning. It can seem as though scripture is deemed to be inconclusive and ambiguous, so that either side is free to concede the possible right of the other's interpretation. It can seem as though what is needed is an indefinite irresolution about everything important, in which there is no need for and no possibility of a decisive closure. But that is all a trick of the light. None of this is implied in the search for agreement. The only thing I concede in committing myself to such a process is that if I could discuss the matter through with an opponent sincerely committed to the church's authorities, scripture chief among them, the Holy Spirit would open up perspectives that are not immediately apparent and that patient and scrupulous pursuit of these could lead at last to giving the problem a different shape, a shape I presume will be compatible with, though not precisely identical to the views I now hold, but which may also be compatible with some of the views my opponent now holds, even if I cannot yet see how. I do not have to think I may be mistaken about the cardinal points of which I am convinced. The only thing I have to think, and this surely is not difficult on such a subject, is that there are things still to be learned by one who is determined to be taught by scripture how to read the age in which we live. And I think that that um, sort of is the, the point at which you, there's like a, a, tut, a, a point of contact between, for example, you know, when we, when we say the Apostles' Creed um, on Sundays, my priest or my pastor generally says, we should think of this as, an, as essentially an oath of allegiance. Like we're committing, our, we're committing ourselves to allegiance to Christ and there's cognitive content to that. And I think that what he's describing there is the, the space where we are fully committing our minds and hearts and wills and allegiances to, um, to the triune God and to the things that he's revealed to us. Um, but at the same time, really understanding that we need part of that is trusting him to work through us, through our conversations, and through the church, um, in and the various offices in the church, and the process by which the church discerns um, these things. Like th there's a commitment to God and a commitment to His ability to work through us. Um, that I think is the way that those two. Um, the open-ended and the sort of closed doctrinal certainty can work together. And that does, I think, maybe bring us to recognition of how communal the practice of freedom of speech is, that it's something that 
requires a, a commitment on the part of communities. It can't just be a matter of individuals having private rights for themselves. We require people supporting these things. We, we require structures. We require the virtues to give space to our neighbor. And we need processes by which we will take the time and the thought to weigh what others say to us, to give them the space in which to express things that may be unsettling. And I think we see this in a great many different areas. Freedom of speech can be seen in uh, deliberation concerning facts of our world. It can be seen in processes of justice. It can be seen in processes in institutions, for instance, where there are no ready processes to challenge profound abuses that are occurring. I think we've seen so many examples of that, the failures of institutions to just give the oxygen within which someone could criticize the institution or some person within it. And so thinking about these processes, I think requires a lot more than the narrow consideration of my voice and how I get to express myself. Mm. It's a commitment that lies upon us to express ourselves candidly on issues that are of concern for the good of our society, but also to create the spaces within which those voices can be heard well, and not just expressed however people want, but expressed in a way that will be given the appropriate weight and weighing that they need to receive. Yeah, I think the other sort of one and perhaps last-ish aspect, or at least one aspect of um, O'Donovan's understanding of all this that I think I also found very useful was there's there's generally like a um, conflict between the idea of political life that has to do with um, recognizing a legitimate authority over you and obeying that authority. And that being something that is genuinely virtuous, that genuinely shapes you into a, a, um, a more whole person and um, one who can, who's able to recognize the good on the one hand. And on the other hand, sort of thinking through the claims of authority um, and sort of deciding for yourself whether like a lot, like allowing there to be the possibility that what the authority commands you to do is unjust because, and, and recognizing that you have your own obligation, like your own conscience, your own obligation to think through whether what you're being commanded to do is just or not. And O'Donovan kind of marries those two in a really wonderful way when he talks about a primary political duty being the duty of intelligent obedience this is like, you can't get away from this. This is like, this is not something that you can either choose to, that you can choose to just sort of forego. So even obedience to a kind of illiberal but pious emperor um, is an act that shapes you towards virtue, not only in the good of obeying that ruler because they have legitimate authority over you, but also in the good of intelligent recognition of the good of the command. And we just can't get away from however we're governed, like in any, whatever manner of government, like whatever constitution we live under, we can't get 
away from that duty of intelligent obedience, which is not that different um, ultimately, or it, which is deeply related to the duty of candid speech. That I think has always brought home to me the fact that speech has weight in a way that much discourse about freedom of speech treats speech as a light thing that can be thrown around as we will and has almost premised its view of freedom of speech upon the idea that speech can't do any harm, um, that the, these things are just words. There's not really something weighty to them. But the approach that I think we're moving towards here is one in which speech really has weight and we have a duty to use that weight well and take responsibility for the words that we are using to create contexts in which those words can have their weight and also that that weight won't do damage. And that I think requires a lot more thought and structural considerations, for instance, and um, social habits and customs and all these sorts of things to sustain. But at the end of it, I think we have a far more fulfilling understanding of what it means to speak as members of our society. I think that's right. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Um, Lord willing, we'll be back in our discussion of the ways of judgment before long. And we look forward to joining with you in going through the rest of the book. God bless and thank you for listening.